So if you didn't catch it, uh, I stand corrected. The kids are not memorizing from the book of June. It's Jude. Thank you to one of my daughters. Uh, so I, we don't have an extra book of the Bible here at Crossways. We're going to stick to the 66 we got. So welcome to the kids, especially the, the elementary students, for being with us. Uh, this is it's a really great time, actually, to start joining us uh, for the next two months because we just finished the book of Judges, and now we're going to enter into the book of Ruth. It's a nice four-chapter book, 85 uh, verses, and we've titled the series there, uh, Bitter to Sweet, the Undercurrent of Providence. Uh, I, kids, I think, uh, and adults, I think this is one of the most significant truths or theological realities that we can embrace and hold to, the fact that God weaves together all the dark days of our lives, our pilgrimage, the, the bitter days of this life for our good and for God's glory. Uh, recently, uh, Danik and I heard from someone uh, that it's good to teach children about faith. That's a, that's a good thing. But we ought not to bring faith into the hard things of life, because that can be confusing for a child. We both walked away and going, are you kidding me? Like, if, if God is not over and in control of the dark days of life, what kind of a God are we worshiping? So that was, you know, I was going on my mind a lot this week. Not only am I, gonna, am, am I going to teach my kids that God ordains the dark days, the bitter days, for our good and for God's glory, but I'm going to stand in front of other kids and say, yes, this is what Scripture teaches, and this is our lifeline. This gives us hope and patience and endurance through the hard days, and this will give us ballast in our souls uh, for those days. So uh, we're going to... Follow this book. It's, it's, uh, we're going to see this th theological reality that God gives uh, in narrative form. So it's a, a story, and uh, it has the title of Ruth, which in some ways is understandable, and in some ways is somewhat surprising. It's understandable because the, Ruth, the, the character that we'll see, is an absolute gem. I mean, just faithful, sacrificial, just a wonderful, wonderful character uh, that we see in Ruth. Uh, so it makes sense that we would name the, or somebody would name the book Ruth. Uh, in fact, uh, this book and uh, some of the oldest Hebrew man manuscripts uh, is actually placed after Proverbs 31. If you know Proverbs 31, that's the noble woman. And so, of course, Ruth is a very noble woman. She's called the worthy woman uh, in the text. Uh, now, when the Septuagint came along, it's the Greek translation of the Hebrew uh, Old Testament scriptures. They placed it here, or the majority of them, uh, placed it here after the book of Judges, which makes sense uh, as well, chronologically. Right? Uh, we'll see that this scene happens at the same time of the book of Judges, so that makes sense. You also then see uh, a great contrast between the book of Judges and the book of Ruth, where all these dark days of the book of Judges, God is redeeming uh, his people through this broken woman that will ultimately lead to the redemption of the nation. Now, the reason why it's surprising to be called Ruth uh, is, one, because it's named after a woman. There's only two books of the Bible that are named after women. You know what the other one is? Esther, Esther that's right. Uh, the other thing is that there's this, this is the only book that is named after a non-Israelite in the whole Bible. So Ruth is a Moabite or Moabitess. 
Uh, and then lastly, it's surprising, is that uh, most would read the book of Ruth and realize that Ruth is not actually the main character. The, the story that you're watching unfold is uh, taking a woman that was very bitter and broken, which is Naomi, and she's going to be put back together. She's going to be restored at the end. And it's going to be through Ruth. Ruth is going to be the, way, the means by which God shows his steadfast love to Naomi. But Naomi is the character that you watch go from this major problem to be totally transformed in the end. As well as if you go to the end, very end of the book, chapter 4, the book pans out and shows you what it's really after. It's, it's using this story of Naomi being rescued, but really to show how the nation itself was rescued. Look at the very end of the book, the last paragraph. We have a genealogy thrown in. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nashan. Nashan fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz who is in this book, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. So uh, this book is written to help us see where David came from. In those dark days of the judges, God was weaving his purpose of redemption to rescue a nation. And uh, so this helps us to understand the first audience as well. Uh, It's written probably around the, the same time as Judges sometime early on in David's reign maybe, maybe a little bit after, but regardless, probably written around that time to help us see how we got to David. How did we get out of the period of the judges and now God is really restoring his people. So that's the time period of the writing of the book. You can almost picture a man um, talking to his son. Let's say the son is, let's say he's my age. And his dad... Uh, actually, so like, no, let me, let me get this right. A man my age is talking to his grandpa. The son, uh, being my age, the Israelite, his son, his dad died. Maybe his dad was in the uh, military. He died with Uriah, the Hittite, as they were thrown out to the front line of the battle because of David's sin. So he grew up with his dad dying while he was young. And then as he gets older, my age, he's, he sees one of his kids dies because of the plague that came on the land because David wanted to do the census. And this man now is struggling. The days are dark. Everything feels painful. And it seems like all, every time he cries out to God, all he gets is silence. And so he's talking to his grandpa. Like, where is God? Is this worth it to follow Yahweh? Why does it always seem like Yahweh's hand is totally against me? Much like we often feel uh, in our pilgrimage. And maybe the grandpa then sits him down and says, son, grandson, my beloved. These dark days are not evidence that God is not with us. We have to remember that God is always weaving together his plan of redemption. That God is always more concerned about his glory and our eternal joy than our temporal comfort. Yes, this is painful, but God has given you an opportunity to demonstrate to the world that God is more satisfying than the comforts of the world. And so this is our day to demonstrate that God is real, God is true, and we can trust him. We will trust him when there's fruit on the vine, and we will trust him when that vine withers, because God is good. And this is not the end of the story. The best is yet to come for God's people. Now let me tell you a story of where we see that. You remember that book of Ruth. And then maybe he unfolds the story. 
So let's go into the story of the book of Ruth, chapter 1. Begins, we'll read that verse 1 to 5 again. This is setting the scene for us. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. She was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives, and the name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And then both Machlon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. All right, a lot of information in there for background that we're not going to be able to cover all of it, obviously. But let me just try to set the scene a little bit. He, he tells us right off the bat it's in the days of Judges. Now, thankfully, we've just walked through Judges, so we don't have to do a whole lot of background there. Uh, we can sum that up simply for those of us who were in there as that was the days when everybody did what was right in their own eyes. They rejected God right from the start. And remember that cycle. They would reject God. God would hand them over to a neighboring country who would oppress them. Then God would raise up a judge. Uh, The people would cry out, God would raise up a judge, and they would turn back to God. The judge would die, and the cycle starts all over once again. It was just a, a, a very bad time in the history of Israel. But there we see there was a famine in the land. Now, that could have been because there was no rain, or water. Um, We don't read about that during the time of Judges, but we do read of uh, the neighboring countries coming in and taking all the food from Israel. So either one of those, uh, regardless how we read that um, or what happened, uh, I think the original audience, when they read that, immediately, one, feels the pain of a famine, right? Uh, Most of us probably can gloss right over that and not really think about it. We think of a a quick drought. Famine is when you have people dying because there's no food. Right? Fam- famine is when parents look at their kids and they literally have no way to feed them and they don't know what they're going to do. It's, it's horrific. All you see is bones on people yet bloated stomachs. And also, I think when the original audience reads that, they read the judgment of God. Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, God told his people, when I take you into the land, if you obey me, your women will have uh, fruitful wombs and the land will bear fruit. It will be a lush land and you will have plenty of food. If you disobey me, you reject my ways, then I will bring in enemies against you. They will take your food. They will come against you. You won't have crops. I will make the sky like bronze and the ground like iron. And your women will not bear children. And eventually, I'll kick you out of the land. All right, so Deuteronomy 28, Leviticus 26, very key chapters to remember as we read the Old Testament on something like this. I think that's the first thought for the audience when they read that. Regardless, this is very bad. Now, it's going to get worse because you have a man named Elimelech, which his name means God is my king. All right, and he's living in Bethlehem, which means the house of bread. So you would think, well, okay, so if the people are disobeying God and there's a famine in the land, the famine in the land is meant to turn God's people so they repent. Surely if anybody in the land is going to repent, it's going to be that guy who my God is king from Bethlehem. But he does not do that. Instead, he turns and he sojourns and he goes off to Moab. 
Now, the last we know about Moab, if you're reading from the beginning of Genesis, Moab and Israel do not have a good history uh, with one another. Uh, so Moab comes from uh, one of the daughters of Lot that he had the incestuous relationship with, and then they had been enemies with Israel ever since. Uh, if you remember, as Israel is going into the promised land, right before they get into the promised land, uh, Moab wants to bring a curse upon Israel, but Balaam uh, and his donkey, they can't do it. And so Balaam goes to the king, Balak, and basically says, look, I can't curse them directly, but if you send some of your women to entice the Israelite men, they'll, they'll go after your women, and God will curse them. So we don't even have to do anything, and of course that's what they do. And so the great plague falls on Israel because of the Moabite women entice the people of Israel. And then, of course, in the book of Judges, they're one of the countries who uh, is oppressing Israel early on. That's uh, Eglon, the king of Moab. That's when Ehud does the stabbing in the stomach, if you remember that scene. Uh, so th there's just not a good relationship throughout the Old Testament of Israel and Moab. And yet, this is where this man is going. It also tells us that this famine is localized. It's not in Moab, which is roughly 60 to 85 miles away, but it's in Israel because the judgment of God is on God's people to turn them to repentance. Now, Naomi's name means uh, pleasant. She's a pleasant woman, at least at the beginning of the story. <clears throat> now, as the author tells us, then they go to Moab, they remain there, and Elimelech dies. Now, that um, is a very painful reality for a woman, especially Naomi is older now. She has older children, uh, and now she's a widow. She's living in a very male-dominated culture, so uh, being a widow is very uh, difficult in that uh, setting. Uh, in fact, as in the Old Testament, God actually gives commands to his people to care for the widow, because the widows are some of the most vulnerable in the community. So he puts three, three categories of people together. There's the widows, the orphans, and the sojourners, the foreigner. All three of these people are the most vulnerable in the community. They have no way of making sure they have stability. And here, Ruth, or uh, Naomi, is not only a widow, but she's a widow in foreign territory. So this, is, this is bad, bad news. But the good news is she still has two sons, right? Mechon and Kilion. But the bad news about them is they end up going and marrying Moabite women, which is a no-no. <laughs> no, no, that's right. <laughs> Just got to try to keep the kids paying attention here. <laughs> Um, so they married the Moabite women. They're there then for 10 years. What turned out to be what we thought was maybe just a quick, you know, a quick move away from the land and come right back has turned into at least 10 years. And then the two men died. And now you have Naomi without anybody to carry on the family name, which is very shameful, without any sons to provide any food, living in a foreign land. And she's got uh, now these other two daughters-in-law who are also widowed. And no doubt you have the, the scorn of the people around them. Hey, who's your God again? This is who you worship? This is what happens to you? And here is Naomi. It's a very sad reality. So I, I think, you know, there's this movie uh, Ice Age. If you, if you saw that one? All right, yeah. So you remember at the beginning of this movie... Uh, there's uh, an attack by the saber-toothed tigers on the family. And uh, it's a very sad beginning because the mom 
is being chased by one of the tigers and she's holding the baby and she's got nowhere to go so she jumps in the waterfall and eventually she's able to swim over to the edge and she she is able to hand the baby to uh was it sid and the the who's the elephant guy what's it Manny, yeah, Manny and Sid. So she hands, puts the baby there, and then the, the camera turns away from her, and then it turns back to her, and she's gone. The mom dies. Now, we were watch, showing this movie to one of our kids, and that's as far as we got. The movie was too sad. They, we couldn't watch the rest of it. There was just tears galore. And it, it's meant to be very sad. Now you, have all, you just have this baby vulnerable as could be with nothing and that's the movie is it starts out sad but you you need redemption and this is the way this book is supposed to start out you have this woman with absolutely nothing and no hope how is she going to make it she's living in moab with nothing so that's the opening scene now we go on to verse six then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab, so she's working in the fields, that Yahweh had visited his people and given them food. So she set off from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. We'll pause there. The rest of the chapter carries this, is carried along with this word return, return, sometimes uh, translated going back, or brought back, but it's 12 times for the rest of the, rest of the um, chapter here. Returning, returning. And now, it's understandable what Ruth uh, Naomi is doing, uh, returning to the land, right? Because she, she actually has more hope of surviving back in Israel. Because God had commanded uh, his people to, you know, as they're, as they're harvesting the grain, to leave, to not like, if, if they drop something, they're not supposed to pick it up. They're supposed to leave that and keep moving so that the widows and the orphans can come behind the, the, the reapers and pick up the food, which we'll see later in the, in the, in the chapters here. Um, so she has more hope, at least in Israel. Perhaps God's people are following God's ways and I'll find food there. Because right? in Moab, it's going to be very tough for her. But it's also crazy. Because here you have this woman who's old with these two young women, and they're going to walk from Moab to Bethlehem, which is hard terrain, and we're talking anywhere from 60, 85 miles, and it's not safe even in terms of the, just the walking period, but you also have raiders who raid people. They're ready to steal from people. And you remember that last scene that we watched uh, or listened to uh, last week in the book of Judges? What happened when a man from uh, Bethlehem goes off uh, and, and he stays in, in Benjamin? I mean, you remember what happened, right? So it's just, this is not a good time. This is not safe. So you have to think of this maybe a little bit more like your grandma is going to take some, a couple of 20, you know, 20, a 20-year-old, 20 a 22-year-old woman, and they're going to walk from downtown Milwaukee all the way through the south side of Chicago. Okay? No, no money to stop at hotels. No cell phone. And they don't have, like, backups. They don't have friends along the way where they can just, like, stay for a while. They're totally vulnerable. Like, this is, this is crazy. Now, I think Naomi realizes the craziness of the walk itself, but also, like, what are you going to do when you get there? And she finally stops and turns to her daughters-in-law and has a new idea for them. Verse 8. 
But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May Yahweh deal kindly with you as you have dealt uh, with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in his, the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. We'll pause there. Now you have to try to picture the scene. I do not picture the scene as being quiet. I picture this scene as being very emotional. Uh, I was watching a movie of the Book of Ruth uh, the other day as I was, you know, I was driving. So I wasn't watching. I was like listening to it. Don't worry. But I was then I was carrying it in the house and I was watching it. And Danica's in, at the the dining room table and she hears it. She's like, "Are you watching a soap opera? <laughs> it's just dramatic." This is wild. She's saying, no, no, I, I have nothing for you. Go. And then she calls God's blessing on them. May God grant you to find rest somewhere in the, in the house of a new husband. I, I don't have anything with you. But from, from the, the, the two women's perspective, this is now saying to a grandma, walk from Milwaukee to the south side of Chicago all by yourself. And if you do somehow manage to make it, you're dead within a matter of weeks, months, years. What are you going to do? You have nobody. Now, they've been through a lot of heartache and pain, right? They've, these women have watched Naomi's sons die. And we go through those traumatic experiences that bond you in a certain way. So now they're looking at their mother-in-law, who no, no doubt they love, and you can see it in the story. And she's saying, I have nothing. You, you go. Shoo. Go. It's heartbreaking. Naomi really can't take it, so she's, she goes to logic in verse 11. Naomi says to them, no, 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 turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that you, they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I'm too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband tonight and should bear sons, would you therefore wait until they're grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters. It is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And again, they lifted up their voices and wept, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Here, Naomi just simply saying, look, girls, you, you, my daughters-in-law, you have to think about this. I have nothing. She turns to this idea of Levite marriage vow, which is in the Old Testament. That, that, that would be the idea of if a woman uh, died and did not have uh, children, the, or I'm sorry, if the woman's husband died and they did not have children, the husband's brother must marry the woman and give her a child and then raise that child so that she can have an inheritance and pass along the inheritance. It's very costly to do that. Uh, but that Naomi's saying, look, even if I had a husband tonight, if I somehow got married, some guy just falls out of the sky, and I had babies right now, a baby in my womb, are you going to wait 15, 20 years for this? No, no. Besides, I'm too old. No, no husband's going to take me. I got nothing for you. Just think about this logically. You come with me, you're, you're getting nothing. And then she turns, turns, on the, you know, turns up the, uh, the heat a little bit and says, look, Besides that, God's hand is against me. You come with me, you're going to have Yahweh against you. 
You want that? Now, Orpa, uh, I don't think we should be too hard on her. I mean, that's, it's sort of a logical argument. Like, you're right. There, there isn't much hope for me. And so she goes back, but Ruth here clings to her. And then we get uh, one of the uh, most beautiful scenes. But, you know, I, the way I've tried to envision the scene, if you've, if this is kind of common in a lot of movies, especially kind of like animated movies, but you know like the book uh, or the, the movie Shrek? When... Uh, you, you saw that one, right? <laughs> when Shrek is trying to get rid of Donkey constantly, and like, get out of here, I got nothing for you. But he keeps like following and clinging to him, like, no, I'm going to go with you. <laughs> See, that's the way I envision this scene here. Verse, <laughs> verse 15, she, said, uh, she says to Ruth, Naomi says, "See, look at this. Your sister-in-law, she's gone back to her people and to her gods. Ruth, Go with her. Return with her to your sister-in-law after her. But Ruth then turns to this beautiful statement. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Naomi, where you go, I go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. And then she calls a curse upon herself. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you. This is, this is amazing right here. I mean, this, this is Ruth giving her whole self to Naomi. I mean, this is, this is uh, one way I've thought about it is, is Naomi almost, is, it's like she's fallen on the train tracks and her leg is caught and there's no getting her leg out. And Ruth sits down with her on the tracks and says, I'm with you to the end. Yeah, I know I could get up right now and walk away, but I'm here, and I'll take that hit with you. It's unbelievable. Gives her whole self. And what she does, it's not only just that she's leaving ge- geographically, though. It's she's, she's saying, my allegiance is now totally switched. What I knew back in Moab is now dead to me. Your God, Naomi, is my God. Your people are my people. That is where I go. Totally trading allegiance. And then we get this scene, verse 18, as it goes on. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, and you would want the author to say, Thank you, Ruth. Thank you. It's so good to have you. (laughs) But that's not what it says. She says, no more. I can't convince her. She just closes her mouth and turns around and just keeps walking. So we have this sort of scene now. As the reader, we see a, a glimmer of light here, right? You see, okay, she, yes, Naomi's in a bad place, a bad position, but she's got Ruth with her. I mean, this is amazing. But she just doesn't see it quite yet. Now, eventually, they get to Bethlehem, verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is this, is this Naomi? Now, you got to think again. This has been 10 years at, at minimum, possibly longer. And they haven't seen her. Now she comes back. She doesn't have a husband. She doesn't have her two sons. 
And she's got this Moabite woman with her. And yet she's back here. In the text group, somebody called this, uh, this is the mixed homecoming. Right? Because on some level, you kind of have this, like, excitement, probably. You, you might think if, if you had a family member who was, who had just, like, treated the, the family uh, very poorly. Maybe they were um, addicted to a lot of things and wasting a lot of things, stealing from the family and treating them poorly. And they go take off. And they lose everything. And they finally come back. They show up. You're at a family gathering. In walks your cousin or your sister who you haven't seen in 10 years. And you're like, what? There's this excitement. And yet, like, some people are like, wow, the judgment of God must be on her. There's just all this mixed stuff going on. But Naomi snaps back. She said to them, do not call me Naomi. What's Naomi mean? Remember, pleasant. Don't call me pleasant. I have a new identity. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has dealt bitterly with me. Very bitterly. I went away from here full and Yahweh has brought me back here empty. Why would you call me Naomi? When Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity on me. So Naomi returned, the Ruth of Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Naomi wants a new name. She's bitter. Now, she still has uh, the ability, she, she, she still thinks of, of who is God. It's Yahweh. You see twice there, she calls by, by the covenant name Yahweh, the Lord, cap, all caps there, a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that's, that's Yahweh. Uh, but also then twice calling him Almighty. That's, that's a title, uh, very popular, uh, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob referred to God as the Almighty. This is the, when we think of the phrase, or the, the term, that God is all-powerful, that's it's coming from this word, uh, the, the Shaddai. You might have heard of El Shaddai. This is the all-powerful one, the, the one that can, can accomplish all his desires, all his will, all his promises. This is the God we worship, the one who is king over all things and has all power to fulfill his mission. And so this is Naomi yet, though. She knows that that's who God is, and yet she feels like all she gets is silence from him. Nothing. And his hand is against her. This is Naomi's perspective. I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard the song, uh, The Silence of God, by Andrew Peterson. I'm a big fan of this, this one. You know this one? Yeah. It, it, he's, he says this. He says, it's enough to drive a man crazy. It's enough to break a man's faith. It's, a, it's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane. When he's bleeding for comfort from thy staff and thy rod, and heaven's only answer is the silence of God. It shakes a man's timbers when he loses his heart, when he has to remember what broke him apart. This yoke may be easy, but this burden is not. When the crying fields are frozen by the silence of God. You've experienced that. All I hear from heaven is nothing. And the, the song goes on. He says, if a man's got to listen 
to the voices of the mob who are reeling at the thro throes of all the, the happiness that they got when they tell you all their troubles have been nailed to the cross. Well, what about the times when even followers get lost? Because we all get lost sometimes. To me, that's Naomi. She comes into a land all happy because God has visited them with bread once again, and she comes broken, absolutely broken, and gets nothing from God. No answer. And this is what it feels like sometimes in our pilgrimage. Now let me just point out three things um, to note uh, that I think could help us from, from Naomi's vantage point as I read this story. First of all, that, that Naomi is broken, yes indeed, uh, yet hope is hidden right in plain sight. Right? You, 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 know, those, uh, you know those pictures? Uh, the technical name is auto stereograms, uh, or sometimes they call magic pictures or hidden pictures. You know, like when you have just like, it looks like just a bunch of like pixels on a page, but if you kind of look through the picture, all of a sudden this actual image pops out. It's this image that's hidden from you, but it's in plain sight. It's right there. And yet you can't see it. So you look through it. This is, this is what Naomi is experiencing, or Mara is experiencing at this point. She's broken, yet there's hope hidden right in plain sight. I mean, she showed up in Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest. You got several months of food. This is great news for her. You also have the fact that she actually made it to Bethlehem. Like, she survived that long trek. That's great news. And you also have who? Ruth, that's pledged herself to be with Naomi until death. I mean, she has light right in front of us. But the bitterness in her heart has blinded her. Right? That's, what, that's what bitterness does. It blinds us from seeing the grace of God at work, right? That's what, that's what depression can do to us. It, it blinds us from seeing what's right before us. The images are the light of hope. That's what anxiety, deep anxiety can do. It, it prevents us from seeing the goodness of God right before us. And we've all experienced that because I'm sure you've experienced one of those three, bitterness and, or depression or anxiety or deep anger. It blinds us from the goodness of God. And that's why we need the community to always be coming around and helping one another see that. Now, would we, would we come up to Naomi and say, hey, how dare you? Don't you know that Ruth is great? Right? I mean, now... You don't want to just like beat people up with like the grace of God. Sometimes the best thing to do is just sit with people, right? Just a ministry of presence. But before long, we do want to also be helping them. Hey, like there's things to, to see here. There is, there is hope here. Like God is on the move. And it's good for our perspective to pull back. The second thing I think that's worth uh, recognizing is that regardless of what Ruth feels, what, what she needs to know is that God has a special ear for the whimpering cries of his people. This, this is throughout scripture. God, God's ear has a special tune to the cries of his people. Even if they're just like, there's, there's bare, it's almost like a death pant. The only thing we can get out is, help. That, that catches God's ear. God has a special ear for the cries of the brokenhearted of his people. You think, I, you know, I was up in a, uh, I was, this was the other week. There was, I was sitting in a classroom where uh, there was a child that the, the mother had placed there. Uh, she was in another classroom for a meeting, and uh, you know, 
the child is in this room where I am to care for the child. And the mother is in the other classroom uh, in a meeting. And uh, I'm kind of just talking with the kid uh, back and forth. He's just sitting in a stroller, pulling off his sock. And he, he was having a jolly old time. Now his sister came along uh, and put the sock back on him. He didn't like, he didn't want his socks on. So he's, he kind of gave a little, a, a little cry because he didn't want his socks on. And I, I looked over at the mom in the other classroom. It was, it was, it was like as soon as she heard that baby crush, she's boom. Like, that's, that's my boy. It's the special heart of the parent that you could have loads of kids crying that doesn't affect the mom until it's one of hers. That's one of mine. It's the special heart that God has for his people. Now, if you're here today and you feel like my days are dark and bitter, and I'm crying out to God, he doesn't hear anything, I just want you to know that God has a special ear for you. He leans in close to listen to the cries of his people. And we ought not think that God doesn't care. Oh, he does. The last thing I think that's worth uh, seeing here is that Naomi does get part of her theology right. And yet she misses the motives. She misreads the motives of God. She is absolutely right that Yahweh is behind her days of bitterness, the dark days. That, that is absolutely true. If God is, is, is sovereign and his providence is bringing about these days, that's absolutely true. God is in control of all our dark days. The problem is Naomi reads that as God's motive is God is against me. So she's misreading the motive. She gets the theology right. God is, yes, in control. It's just that God's not against her. God is actually weaving together something beautiful. Redemption. For God's glory and for the good of Naomi, which we'll see over the course of the next couple chapters, God is going to redeem Naomi. At the end of the book, there's a child born, and it's born to Ruth, but the, the people of the community say that it's the child of Naomi. And that Ruth to Naomi is better than seven sons. And Naomi is restored. But yet we see that the book is not just talking about the redemption story for her. It peels out and says, no, no, no. This is a story of God redeeming his people. Because it gets us to David. Who David is eventually given a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that he will have a son who will reign forever over all nations. Who then, David has a son who has a son who has a son who has a son who himself had the silence of God days. I, I love how Andrew Peterson's song goes on at the end. He says, there's a statue of Jesus on a monastery knoll in the hills of Kentucky. It's all quiet and cold. And this statue, he, he's kneeling in the garden as silent as a stone. All his friends are sleeping and he's weeping all alone. This is, this is the picture of Garden of the Gethsemane. As he's crying out to God, he's, he's uh, sweating drops of blood. And as he eventually is on the cross saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it's just silence. And yet he goes all the way to the cross so that we can know as God's people that even in the darkest day of the history of the world, the death and crucifixion of Christ, that was our victory. That is our glory. And so we can know that in all of our dark days, surely we have the promise that God is for us in Christ. We will have dark and bitter days like Naomi, but because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we can know that 
God is for us in that. It's not because he's against us to punish us. All the punishment of God, all the wrath of God has fallen on the Son of God, Christ, for those who worship him. And only the benevolent love of God is the one bringing us through the hard days for our good and for God's glory. And God has sealed that, indeed, in the Lord's Supper for us to remember that we can actually hold on to this promise that God is for us even in the darkest of days, and we remember it as we partake of the elements, that Christ died for us to bring us to God so we never have to wonder if God is for us. If you're a follower of Christ today, I invite you to partake, uh, provided you are walking in repentant faith uh, in Christ. This is not about perfection, but about direction. Striving to walk in faith with Christ. If you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus, you proclaim him as uh, the one, the God who, who took on flesh, died in the place of sinners and rose from the dead, uh, then we ask that you not partake. Or if you're here this morning and, and proclaiming the name of Christ, but not walking uh, as if you truly know him, then we ask that you not partake as well. But if you're here this morning walking in repentant faith, we invite you to come. Come to the inner part of the aisle, grab the elements, and then to the outer side of the aisle and return back to your seat, and we will partake together. One of the hard things about bitter and dark days that we encounter is it makes us feel very alone. We feel like nobody gets us. Nobody sympathizes with us. And yet, we're reminded that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us because he's endured every temptation like us and yet was without sin. And he was betrayed by his closest friends. And he was left all alone. And yet he did it to bring us back to God. Let us be reminded this morning that the bread reminds us we have a high priest who knows all of our pain and can come very close and can sympathize with us in our deepest, darkest moments. For the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body. Do this in remembrance of me. For the cup, I'd like to read a a passage from uh, Romans chapter 8 that I think is fitting for us this morning. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not with him freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against any of God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. So then, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Persecution? Famine? Or nakedness? Danger? Or sword? No, as it's written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, in distress, in tribulation, in persecution, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord, sealed by the blood of the Lamb. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup, it is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. Let us stand and pray together. God, thank you for the book of Ruth. Uh, think of uh, you know, f- folks that may feel like they're in the throes of dark days, bitter days. Uh, they just feel alone. And I ask God that this, this reality that we read about in the book of Ruth and your unique special care for your people, even through the dark days, uh, would, would land on us in a unique way. Uh, heal us, strengthen us, comfort us. And for those not experiencing that, God, give them uh, the ability to minister to those who need it as well. In Christ's name, amen.